Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And then there was four. But there's only two here on the front three podcast this time around. I'm joined by none other than Nico Morales to go through the quarterfinals and where that led us to the semi-finals. There's only one more game before the final and the chance of eternal glory. Nico, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I can't believe it's gone this quickly. It's almost like yesterday we were reliving the 3-3 Portugal versus Spain, like one of the best openers that we've seen not really an opener but you know one of the first games and now it's almost over we're almost to the end and it's like at the beginning you know I was like ah football again but now I'm like ah football <laughs> it does feel as if it was only yesterday that Robin Williams was flipping off half the globe um, <laughs> we're now at the quarterfinal stage though um, and, and things kicked off on or we were I should say and without, that kicked off on Friday had Uruguay France in which France emerged 2-0 winners fairly comfortable I would say all told for the the French that was the 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 vibe I got there was a nice piece I thought written by Jorge Valdano in the Guardian about why we should kind of admire Uruguay and what they represent and uh, just a very meandering but in a good way sort of piece from from him what what did you gleam from this game because the French seem to have kept a very I would say differing representation of they haven't been their best but then they were devastating against uh, Argentina and they were fairly solid here you could argue yeah I think they were good I think I think Uruguay probably would have won this game had Cavani played the link up between him and Suarez was really potent and even from an analytics perspective like it wasn't the best game this is kind of this has been the theme you know outside of Argentina like they're they've been good, but they haven't. There's still an overwhelming sense of underachievement. I think it we have from this French team, despite the results. Like they've gone through, they haven't really had a bad moment. But I think if Uruguay had 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 all their best players, which I guess just really includes Cavani, I think we probably would have seen Uruguay go through because. Uruguay held them. They only they only accumulated a, an expected goal rating of about 0.4. Um, and Uruguay, although they, they accumulated one slightly better of 0.7, it's really still not great. It wasn't the greatest game from an attacking perspective. But, yeah, I think it was, um, it was a little sad to see that team go out because I think, you know, not a lot of people expected a whole lot from them. There was a lot of traditional attacking pieces that they were missing. But they really kind of play to their strengths and minimize their weaknesses, which I think is the most that you can ask from any team. And so had it not been, you know, to an injury to one of their best players and probably one of the best players in the world, we might not be talking about France going to the final. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty decent game, I think, overall. And as you kind of alluded to there, France can now 
look forward to the semi and possible final if, if they get there. What about Uruguay? Because Tabarez has been with this team for a long time now. He's carried them through, you could argue, an entire generation, if not more. You look at the start of the decade, 2010, 2011, they win Copa America after a good showing at the World Cup. They've had a fairly solid, I would say, run since the turn of that decade. But there are players in here, you look at Suarez, Cavani, who will have to be phased out now, who essentially will not be present, you would imagine, in 2022 and and further. And yet there are glimmers of something with Torreira, Bentancur, these kind of players. What do you think is the next step for Uruguay? I think they, they they really need to revolve around the the players that you mentioned. Bentancur, in specific, I think had a fantastic tournament. He doesn't provide, I think, attacking brilliance as much as maybe people would want to, considering the prominence that he had in the tournament. But he's just so calm in possession. There's so few times where I saw him, you know, in difficult situations, not being able to get out of it. And that's something I think we don't really really see from a player all that often anymore. To to really kind of stretch the comparison, he did remind me of like a Busquets to some extent, like his calm and possession and his ability to understand where the ball should go um, in terms of not putting his team in a difficult position from a possession perspective was second to none. I think his talent is something that I had watched him at Juventus, but he doesn't have the same role there. Allegri has deployed him as like a, you know, varying midfielder as he does many midfielders that are talented within that Juve team, which isn't his fault. And I mean, he's had success with it. But anyways, that's a different podcast. But um, yeah, I think I think they won't be as prominent because Suarez without Cavani really looked immobile. And that's kind of the thing that I've talked about with him at Barcelona is that even though Griezmann is no longer going to Barcelona, that move is completely off. Um, I think they will have to find a replacement for him because he really has taken a dive from the athletic perspective. He isn't as mobile anymore, and I think that's what made him such a good striker at at Liverpool and in the early years of Barcelona is his ability to move around the pitch and be this tireless working player. He's still going to be good. He's still probably one of the best or probably one of the better players in the world, but I think a replacement is needed this summer, if not, you know, very, very soon. Um, so I think they won't be as prominent despite, you know, the, the coaching brilliance of uh, Tabarez, but at the same time, they have other talented players that, you know, they could probably do things in Copa Americas and other, you know, things if they still have Cavani and, and some other attacking players. Mm. Any strong thoughts on, on Diego Laxal as well? Because that's someone, I read a, a piece from Rory Smith and then I think Simon Cooper did something along a similar line for ESPN that talked about the fact that scouts no longer look at World Cups as, as a potential place to find talent because it's too inconsistent, it's too volatile, the sample size is too small. I mean, you go back years, Jean-Michel Olas used to say the same thing. And yet he's sort of emerged from this Uruguay team as a player who I think wasn't talked about as being very influential, but has had a very good tournament. And I know he's been linked with Benfica and things like that. Is is there anything that's jumped out to you? Is it something that maybe you see a degree of consistency with him? Or, or kind of just your overall thoughts, I guess, of Laxal and his tournament? I think I would still agree with the opinion that you kind of talked about before, which is that, you know, five games at most, or th- three or four games in Uruguay's case, like it doesn't, I guess five for them, but it doesn't really give you a great perspective. And if you add on to that, the fact that, you know, Laxalt had a good tournament, yes. And I think we should praise him and maybe coaches who are going to look, who are going to use him in the future, the coach that he has now or the coach that he'll play for at his next club, should look at the role that he had in that Uruguay side, Uruguay side and say, hey, 
I think this is probably your best position. This is how we use you best. But to like make a move and hope that he transforms into a maybe a different player, the one that you're hoping he you want him to be, I think would be a little bit unrealistic, not just for Laxal, but really any player. So I think the key here is... I think Martin Caceres is another good example of this. He was really good for Uruguay in this tournament, but he's been a wildly inconsistent player throughout his entire career. He's always had the talent. That's why he ended up at Juventus, but he's also had tons of off-the-field issues. And even in this World Cup, he's been good, but I think if you put him in a in another team or a, you know, a system that looks to expose him more, or even if you just see more games with him, um, I think those frailties start to come to the fore a little bit more. So again, I think it's a good template to say, okay, let's try out Laxalt and say, let's put him in a wing back position where, you know, he can, he can be more fluid and, and get up and down the pitch a little bit more and not be so constrained by a typical left back or, or full back role. But at the same time, you know, don't go crazy with it and expect the world of a player that lit it up across four games, you know? Well, one team that did go crazy, at least in the first half, was Belgium, who will be France's opponents in that semi-final. And they managed to get to that stage by beating Brazil. Um, an interesting one, this, Nico, because I don't think people thought it was within the realms of impossibility that Belgium would win. But I would say that the way the game unfolded, with Belgium rushing into a 2-0 lead, with that first half, just the way it was in general, it certainly had a lot of us caught off guard. It, what were kind of your overall thoughts of, of the first half and the way that, that Bobby Martinez managed to, to handle the first sort of 50, 45 minutes? I think what you're saying is right. Not a lot of people... There was a lot of people that, if you look at Belgium's team, if you're someone maybe that doesn't keep up with football that much, you say, okay, they, they have a perfectly capable team of players to go ahead and beat Brazil, who are equally probably as talented in, in many respects. But we all know the frailties that Belgium have had. It's Martinez. It's, you know, a lack of faith in his ability to show up in big situations. Even after the game, he said, I've never lost a game on the tactics board. It's just been the execution of those tactics. And I mean, you know, I, I know a lot of people kind of talk to me and say that I mention analytics far too much and you know we can have our own opinions about that but I think you know Brazil were really unlucky to not even equalize let alone win this game they created a ton the expected goals were about 2.5 to 0.5 um, plus Belgium had a had a own goal um, but yeah I, I think I think Brazil created a ton I think they did really well um, after they they went down to kind of come back and try to create more um, the difficulty is Belgium finished some really decent counterattacking chances, and I kind of said this before the game started. If I didn't think they were going to do this, I thought this was going to be once again the managerial error that uh, Martinez was going to fall uh, fall prey to. Was you know, if Belgium took a counterattacking approach to the game, if they wanted to maybe be a little bit more defensive and try to catch Brazil on the counter, that would be a, a good way to do it because. As far as counter-pressing goes and teams that are going to be good in possession, it's Brazil and England that have kind of set themselves apart from the rest of the competition and their ability to do that. So I think allowing or, or trying to be uh, the, the possession team against Brazil wouldn't be the best idea um, for Belgium. But they kind of took that counter-attacking approach. The difficulty is that even, even with the defensive approach, um, they they still conceded a ton of chances. And I think had it not been, you know, for a, a few deflections or Coutinho just straight up missing um, in some situations, I think maybe we wouldn't be talking about 
um, Belgium right now would be talking about Brazil. But that's how the cookie crumbles. It is how the cookie crumbles. And I, and I thought that was one of the more interesting pieces I read in the wake of this was Michael Cox for The Independent talking about comparisons with the way Belgium lined up from an attacking standpoint in that first half and Bobby Martinez as Everton. Um, and he likened Lukaku to the wide right role he occasionally played. Um, I believe Eden Hazard was cast in the Kevin Morales role, which I'm sure Kevin Morales is delighted to read about. And uh, <laughs> Kevin De Bruyne was almost the Stephen Naismith. Now, he, he did kind of caveat with it the fact it wasn't a perfect comparison, but it did seem as if there were elements of um, his time at Everton that, that carried over, if you will, into this this moment with Belgium. And it, it does make me wonder, as the game progressed, as you talked about there, I think you even I, you may have mentioned it to me in a, in a WhatsApp group that um, there was an element of the second half and the overall game that was unfair to Brazil. They, they should have at least managed to take it to extra time based on the chances they created. We look at Martinez, we give him credit for the first half. The second half, he seemed to, to struggle to adapt. Do you have concerns about him going into this game that, yes, he can set up a good plan in the first instance, but he doesn't seem necessarily always able to react to the moment? Is that, is that a fair criticism of him? 100%. I think his... I don't know. I, I, I just don't understand how a manager who was quite clearly outplayed in terms of the chances conceded could have sort of the, the balls to say that, you know, I mean, he can say that it was it's never been down to him and he's always been prepared from a mental perspective, but just the execution of the tactics. But just how that goes over both from an ideological standpoint and from, I don't know, a player perspective. I can't imagine what the Belgian players kind of thought of that, even though they won the game. It's still it's still something that I think he, he presents major confidence in his ability to, like you said, push things out there initially. But I still I I. I I kind of falter at the idea that he really thinks that he was vindicated in that game because like I said they they did not create near as much as Brazil and although they you know they had a few good counterattacking opportunities if an own goal doesn't go in you know that's it's a very different game so the confidence that he has in his ability it, the confidence that he has in his ability based off of what was I know a lot of people are going to you know argue with this but somewhat of a freakish win is is strange so yeah I have I, I have a, a doubt in his ability to change and I think you mentioned to me that you like Tite and the fact that you know he was able to change and simply bring on Renato, Renato Augusto to, to get that more air, aerial presence at the end of the game um, was something that you admired which I think is completely correct the difficulty is that he's going up against Didier Deschamps which is another manager that I think doesn't have a whole um, a, a lexicon of tactical acumen you know, so it's it's the battle of it's the the, the blonde bleeding the blind, as it were. <laughs> well, you talked about confidence in ideas. Someone that seems to have confidence in Tite is the Brazilian Football Federation, because I had seen reports that they're intending to extend his contract by I think it was another four years, which again seems a very bold move. I think that's something that Brazil have often been criticised for: is that when it does go wrong, they throw the baby out with the bathwater and the they're always starting again was one criticism I had, had seen thrown their way. Is that something looking at this tournament? I mean, they did go out. It, it wasn't the greatest performance. I think there's a lot of hindsight evaluations in an attempt to look forward for a second. Are you happy with TT potentially staying if, if you are a Brazil fan or if, if you're someone who uh, you know cares about the Brazilian national team? Is it the right move for you? 
I think so, because not only for me were the tactics on, I think he, he got sort of the best out of what is a difficult position to be a favorite. I know a lot of people, you know, not they don't uh, maybe understand that dynamic quite well, but it is being a favorite or being having an immense amount of talent in a in the brevity that an international competition provides is it provides you know obstacles in and of itself and you have to be a, a, a talented manager and able to in order to be able to deal with those sort of things and so I think he dealt with that exceptionally well but I also think the energy around and and sort of the the attitude around the Brazilian team was something that he helped recover from that traumatic experience which was the 7-1 at the the 2014 world cup i think the, you know the players felt confidence not only in themselves but in their manager and i think it's always it, it may seem something that's not that big of a deal but it's always good to see like manager the manager celebrating with the players and i remember i think it was either in the group stages or right after the group stages like they all ran out into the pitch after someone scored and i think it was paulinho or something and aderson like ran Tite over but then they picked him right up and they were celebrating with him and I think when you have that connection between player and manager I think it's super important to have that just in a in a regular context but in a national team setting where you're only seeing each other every now and again I think if they have that good relationship with him and they have a genuine and consistent understanding of what he wants and that's the relationship that we see reflected then I think they're on a good path so for me it's the right appointment. I imagine there are certain aspects of the French and Belgian population that are starting to think Didier Deschamps and Roberto Martinez was the right appointment. They meet now in the semi-finals for what promises, I think, to be a somewhat entertaining um, matchup. At least I hope so from a neutral perspective, um, although I do have some vested interest, obviously. These two teams, we talked about Belgians counter-attacking against Brazil. It would seem to me that, that France have, have really done their best work in that Argentina game when they were able to counter-attack and, and have those those very rapid transitions. Um, there was a really good graphic actually from a journalist at the Financial Times talking about how devastating Eden Hazard has been on, on those types of counter-attacks. Um, his name unfortunately escapes me at the minute. I'll try and put it through the, the Twitter account if, if I can remember. How do you see this one panning out, Nico? Because when you have two counter punches like that, someone someone has to throw eventually. You can't you can't just stand off each other forever. Do, do you see one team feeling a bit more confident and trying to take the ball, or how do you see this one panning out? I think, given their frailties in defense, like I talked about against Brazil, I. I, I see this one going France's way because there's just so much talent in every position that even though um, Deschamps hasn't taken the more attacking approach, you know, he's played uh, Benjamin Pavard and and, uh, and Theo Hernandez, who are essentially converted center backs um, as sort of his, his flank players instead of Benjamin Mendy and Djibril Sidibe, um, they still have so much talent in, in various parts of the pitch. And so what that equates to is that you can have a variety of approaches in, in one team. You have Olivier Giroud that you can be direct to if, if you know you need to bypass the midfield. You have Kylian Mbappe that can create almost anything from anywhere. You have a midfield of, of Kante and Pogba and, and whoever he chooses next, whether it's Tolisso or Nzanzi or whoever, that can provide counters and, and, and ball possession in ways that I think not a lot of teams have the ability to given their talent, regardless of whether you know they're Germany or Brazil or whoever, or even Belgium. The, the the midfield combination of having someone like Pogba and specifically Conte, who I've been 
massively impressed with. I mean, the, the, his his brilliance does not stop at uh, at the defensive end. Um, I think is just such a such an asset, and you combine that with, like I said, the the defensive abilities, but also the ball progression abilities of someone um, like Samuel Ntiti and Rafael Varane, who have been really good on the ball in terms of progressing it, whether it be through the fullbacks, through the midfield, or directly up to the forwards. They've all been good. So regardless of the fact that maybe this France team are a little bit more tactically inept, they have so much variety in the individual ability of their players that I think it gives them an edge in almost every situation. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hmm, and you kind of alluded to, to a similar theme, I think, that for a piece that you wrote for um, The Ringer, which is titled why the most important attackers at the World Cup are defenders. And, and in it, and please correct me if I misrepresented but, but essentially the, the crux of your argument is that centre-backs are playing a really key role in instigating, initiating and sort of controlling the attacks of teams and you, you talked about Belgium, France and, and England and and just going back to, to that piece for a moment which is, is a really worthwhile read uh, if you can hunt it out, it's, it's on the, the front three's timeline already um, you talked about some of the, the conclusions that you expect to play out in these semi-finals, now that the teams know each other, now that they've got that sample size of, of a few games to, to look at and study how teams do things, do you see those things playing themselves out? And, and almost can you see the managers trying to adapt to that and trying to, to counteract the fact that their midfielders, for example, won't have a wealth of time as, as opposed to earlier in the tournament? Yeah, I think the the one thing that Belgium can do against France that'll be kind of specific to what I was talking about in the ringer piece is that France will probably try and play a high line to in order to compress Belgium when they do have the ball. And there they have their, you know, definitely world-class asset in Toby Alderweireld. He's someone that I specifically mentioned in the piece and his ability to, to find a, a, a player from across the field. His long ball ability is second to none. I included a graphic in that piece. Um, that was basically Paul Riley's expected passing metric, which uh, which tells us the difficulty of uh, the difficulty level of the passes players are making. And Toby Aldo Ireland basically um, stands alone amongst the the center backs in the Premier League uh, for his ability to find players in space from long distances. And I think if 
France don't press Belgium properly, which is a possibility because pressing is a difficult thing to do regardless of the situation you're in. And I think given the the brevity of international competitions, it can be more difficult to kind of consistently do that. If they don't press him properly, then they can find Aiden Hazard. They can find Lukaku. They can find space behind that, that high French line at times, and they can expose that. At the same time, like I said, Samuel Ntiti, Rafael Varane, they can find their options up the field and... Belgium are just too loose. They, they concede so much, and I think they want to hold on for dear life in order to get the ball to De Bruyne and guys up front, but that that's that, that might not work against a, a front line of Griezmann and, and Mbappe and Giroud, uh, or even Dembele that can come off the bench. So I, I, it'll be interesting, but I, like I said, I think France will probably come out the winners. Wow, bold prediction there, France, to come out the winners. On the other side of things, the first quarterfinal uh, we had was England against Sweden. Um, a fairly routine 2 0 win um, for England. I think a lot of people were surprised by almost how stress free it was. I mean, granted, it's important to, to note that Jordan Pickford made some incredible saves, um, not at the level of his Eribe save in the previous round, but at least the one from Forsberg and what have you were, were fairly solid. Um, how did you see this one? playing out and and were you like many of us us English folk impressed with with what you saw from the team yeah 100% I think like I said before the where England has sort of defined themselves in this tournament is as a counter-pressing team and what that essentially equates to is if they have the ball they make sure they're not going to be counter-attacked upon by instituting a, a really aggressive press as soon as they lose it and it's really difficult to coordinate that as a club team as a team that has five days a week 365 days a year almost to practice it but to do that in such a brief time I think goes back to the piece I wrote for the Athletic at the beginning of the tournament that you know they're using a lot of Spurs, Manchester City and Liverpool players to institute that kind of or to implement that kind of tactic rather. And so their ability to to do that really well in this competition I think has set them apart. And when you come up against a team like Sweden that were able to, you know, put 10 or 11 people behind the ball that wanted to counterattack against them that wanted to use, you know, their their really only weapon um, in transition, and Emil Forsberg to get to get the best out of those situations, they were able to completely negate that. They held them to about 0.5 um, expected goals, which is really good, and they created 1.1 uh, themselves because they have the ability to progress the ball in those ways, and Sweden just couldn't keep up with them. So I think, like you said, there's been a lot put into maybe the the, the win against Colombia before, which is on penalties, which I thought was a little bit weird because, you know, one kick of the ball goes awry, and it's a different situation. But in this game, they really announced themselves because Sweden are no pushovers. They, they beat a lot of good teams to get there. Um, but, yeah, they, they had a, a really good 2-0 win. Like you said, it was it was relatively easy. Um, and it was good to see England have that level of agency against a team that is good. Yeah, that's one of the, the interesting things, actually, because I watched this game in the company of David Priest, and, and about 60 minutes in, it might have even just been after the second goal. I sort of turned to him and, and said, you know, I wonder if there's a part of this Swedish team that we're almost paper tanks. And, and what I mean by that is I read pieces... Uh, talking about you know this change in Swedish football at the national team level, the the removal of Zlatan and how taking out this big piece actually forced all the other pieces closer together, um, and that they're a, a, a massive contradiction in a lot of terms. The Swedish national team—they're a counter-attacking side that aren't quick. They're uh, a defensive side that aren't very aggressive. It, it, it's lots of things that seem at odds with each other, and it made me wonder: is there an element of them that? they managed to forge this reputation in the early stages 
And it wasn't maybe as accurate as we thought because I don't really think they provided a lot of uh, trouble or really a test for, for England in that sense. They, they promised a lot on paper. We, we talked about Forsberg and all these things. But truth is, I just didn't see anything. Am, am I perhaps being too harsh and zooming in on, on one game where they just didn't show up? Or, or what's kind of your evaluation of, of Sweden in this, this tournament setting? No, I mean, like I said, I just think they were no match for England's counterpressing. Like, to be that good and to do it as well as they did is a testament to them. And Sweden were good. In the, in, I don't think they necessarily falsely uh, accumulated the reputation that they did, and it was just England being that good. I know it's something that is difficult to believe given England's past record, but I think you genuinely have something to be excited for. I know I wanted to pump the brakes as much as possible on the England hype train. It's coming home. I mean, maybe it is coming home. Um, we'll get onto the Croatia preview, but to be that good at a tactic that's difficult to implement is a testament to them. And then to not only do that, but be able to progress the ball in the way that they did and create chances in the way that they did. This is a good England team. It is a good England team and they will meet Croatia in the semifinals after a fairly engaging uh, penalty shootout win against Russia. Um, Russia, I don't think we're, cleared for by our legal team yet to fully talk about in depth outside of <laughs> tactics um but croatia they're they're an interesting bunch in so much as they made very difficult work of it against denmark you could say the same against russia here this is a golden generation absolutely rakitic modric etc are you confident in what they can do moving into the semi-final because i must confess after the group games with Croatia I haven't seen a great deal yet to think wow this is a team that could go all the way and dare I even say actually lift the, the trophy you know in, in next Sunday or whenever is on the 14th so what do you think I think you're right I think Croatia they've won essentially you know we kind of have to try to look at these things in the most objective way we can even though that's virtually impossible but just look at the route like you're saying, they won two penalty shootouts. That's that's really all you have to say in terms of object, objectivity. They were good. They can create chances. They are a decent team. But they beat two teams on penalties. And that's not really all that convincing. They have, like I said, they have a, a good attack. They have um, probably one of the greatest midfield duos of all time in, in Rakitic and, and Modric, um, along with Kovacic and and. You know they have all the itches. They have uh, Rebic and and Mansukic and a ton of good players and a ton of good outlets. But I think coming, if you look at the roads, you know just to this point, Croatia played Denmark, who were a decent team, but in terms of quality and their ability to execute, you know, complex tactics, it was never going to be there. And they they beat them on penalties. Then they a Russia team, which like you said, we're not fully cleared to kind of talk about um, outside of tactics, but they, they had to beat them on penalties as well. And yes, they were up 2-1, and yes, they you know Russia scored on a corner and kind of the dying moments, and that's what led to that. But, you know, they didn't finish their, their – they created some, but they didn't finish all their chances. They, didn't, they weren't able to put away the game and kind of hold it there um, in some sense. And England kind of directly contrasts that. Colombia are a very good team, and even without James Rodriguez, that was a tough game. And like I said, though that was on penalties, they proved their worth in the next round. Sweden were a good team, and they dispatched them with relative ease. So I think for me, 
kind of looking ahead to that game, even though Croatia, Croatia have been relatively impressive, a lot of people are willing to kind of buy into it and say, you know, look at the golden generation. They're finally kind of proving themselves. I think England will be their first real test, a real quality team, and I don't think they're going to fare all that well. Well, that's one thing, actually, from a, a more focused tactical point that, that's come up with Croatia. They talk about the two central midfielders, Rakitic and Modric, Brozovic, where that all kind of fits in. Where do you sit on that? How do you think Croatia should be lining up purely from a sort of central midfield perspective? Is it two, three? What do you think? I'm just surprised that they haven't played Kovacic as much. I understand that he has, uh, he occupies some of the space that Modric does, and he doesn't necessarily often play at the same time that, that Modric does when they're at Real Madrid. But to have a player that talented be on the bench so much, I think I understand the the, the tactical and, oh, I guess the tactical usage and, and wanting to maybe have a different option when those players tire out and wanting to get the best of Modric. And if you have a player that is going to hamper his ability, then you probably don't want him on the field, regardless of how good he's been. But I would want them to be a three because I think Kovacic, he, he gives you everything that you need and more. He's that energetic young player that can get around and press and make tackles, but at the same time, he's talented on the ball. He's press resistant. He can give you moves forward. He has the ability to to kind of create things from midfield as Modric and Rakitic do. So for me, that's their strongest midfield three. You continue to play Brevich, you continue to play Mandzukic, who's an aerial option, and I think you have a chance against England, um, at least from a talent perspective. Speaking of a, a talent perspective, they meet an England side that seems to be boasting the sort of England, the country's finest. Um, you obviously wrote that piece as we talked about on on John Stone's influence. Um, there's been a lot of discourse about Raheem Sterling and the fact that you know he missed a few chances against Sweden, but he's playing a greater role. Um, England in general, they've had a, a, a curious one. Some people have talked about the fact that they haven't faced any. Uh, quality opposition in inverted commas um, usually those criticisms come with a Scottish accent attached um, Croatia have had a, a similar sort of run you could argue and, and I feel like in certain that, uh, to a certain degree that's indicative of the World Cup we're having how do you actually see their meeting coming down because as we've talked about there, in England they're doing this counter press and they've got a very very defined style the most defined I can personally remember in a World Cup post-millennium um, because I was not taking in Euro 96 or, or France 98 with that much of an analytical mind. Where do you see that game panning out and, and who who do you see maybe trying to take the lead and all that kind of stuff? I think the, the, the key points in that match, I guess, literally, will be in the wide areas because, I, I like I talked about with the John Stones and sort of central defender piece. He's been, him, Kyle Walker, and Harry Maguire have been immense in their ability to progress the ball. And what they've done is, you know, they, they have the intelligent posi- the intelligence in possession. They can move it back when they sense the move is dead and they don't want to get pressed and counterattacked upon. So they've sucked oppositions forward and they've been able to exploit the space by doing those things. I think Croatia will be a little bit smarter. And like I said, if they play that midfield three or even the midfield two with, or, or a different three, not the one I mentioned, but um, with somebody else, they'll be smarter in that midfield area. I think they'll be more hesitant to open up space. So I think the, the wide areas, um, sort of the wingbacks will be key for England. The, the difficulty for me is that I don't think Ashley Young is all that great uh, in that wingback role. I don't think he... He can provide things going forward, but I, I just see so much more usage in Danny Rose because I think he understands the position better. So 
for me, I think it'll be, like I said, the, the wide areas will be key, and whoever is able to progress the ball best, which I happen to think is Danny Rose, um, should kind of play in those positions. But regardless, I think, yeah, it'll be England's ability to progress the ball up the wings and then sort of get it into the to the players who can finish it, like Delhi and, and Harry, and um, put them in good situations. I think Raheem probably also will still be key. I know a lot of people have diverse opinions on him, and we'll probably do like a a post-mortem on the World Cup, and we'll kind of talk about the biggest things, and Sterling will definitely be on the top of that list regardless of how England turn out. But I, I think this is their chance to get to the final. I mean, Croatia are good, but I think they're definitely ex- an exploitable team. And if anyone can do it, it's England. And, you know, I, I think we won't be able to, to, to stop hearing it's coming home once <laughs> they get to the final. <laughs> Well, if I can borrow your, your wisdom and insight for a second, let's say hypothetically that they do advance past Croatia uh-huh. and you can pick the opponent that England get in that final with the intention of giving them the greatest opportunity to win. <laughs> I should have given that important... I must give that important caveat, I feel like. Right, right, right. <laughs> who would you want them to face? Who do you think that they've got the better chance again? I think it's Belgium. I think they're tactically exploitable, and like I said, they're far too reliant on their ability to, you know, to want to rely on a packed-in defense, which really, as I talked about, uh, or as I'll be talking about in a piece for The Athletic, it's not really the most reliable thing to do anymore, given how teams are able to create space and create chances. So for me, it's Belgium, because I think, like I said before, even though Didier Deschamps is not the, uh, the most tactically astute manager, from a player talent perspective, they can they can pull themselves out of out of almost any hole. So for me, it's Belgium, and I think Southgate would easily get the best of Martinez. But you know, it's a uh, it it would definitely be an interesting final. But yeah, if I wanted to England to win, I would pick Belgium. One curiosity I have just that pops into my head: they're all all the four teams that have made the semi final. It may be harder for you to answer this from a, a Croatian perspective because I, I I don't think their coach really has a very prevalent reputation or image or understanding or whatever there's going to be two that obviously go out three that don't win the competition for the three that don't theoretically win would you want them to keep their manager is there any reason to get rid of a coach that makes it this far or or is it something where actually they must have done something right to get to this stage it's not purely luck that's got them there no it's not purely luck it's like I think it's dangerous to speak in absolutes, really, in any facet of life. But, yeah, I still think there's plenty of good reasons. Like, Germany have kept a hold of Joachim Lowe because even though they are massively disappointed and obviously the result of going out in the group stages will not be acceptable, I think they still understand that thing that I talked about earlier for the ringer, which is, like, the impossibility of being a favorite. Germany did most of the things right, and if they had gotten out of the group stages, I would have favored them in... in in games where you know they can kind of isolate and not be so not go up against teams that are just really going to sit in and and you know they were kind of unlucky across a certain amount of games i think in those situations it's good that they kept Joachim Lowe because i think he had the right idea and it was just a confluence of things that went wrong for him at the same time you can still look at Roberto Martinez getting this far or you know Deschamps getting this far and say it's still not good enough because their performances haven't been there. What has saved them is their talent. What has saved them is Mbappe. What has saved them is you know Pogba and Conte and all these guys and De Bruyne in the case of Martinez and, and other stuff like that. They've done well, yes. They've, they're 
are some things that they've consciously done to get their team to where they are now. But I, I could imagine a whole host of other managers or at least a whole host of other approaches that those national teams could take to get to be more, I guess, to, to, to be able to repeat that more readily. Like they've gotten the result, yes, but there's no point in getting a result if you have no idea how you got there. And I think in a lot of these cases some of these managers have no idea how they got there, or at least they don't know that, but they don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> well, there we have it. More uh, insight from, from our man in the know when it comes to analytics, tactics, and everything in between. It could be coming home, folks. That's that's the truth of the statement. Um, as, as you can tell by the, the my use of the word could, I, I'm still not fully believing it myself, I think, because I'm a, a born pessimist, but We'll have everything that happens or we'll have reaction to everything that happens in the semis and the finals um, and, and everything in between because I think somehow there's some more twists and turns to come in this tournament given that it really it's been a, a tournament full of upsets and shocks. You go right back to, to the start um, and Robbie Williams flipping his finger at the, the global audience of, of the World Cup. Um, but in the meantime, I've been Kristen Hennage. I've been joined by the ever-wonderful Nico Morales. Um as you've heard me already push his piece for the ringer. Is there anything else of yours, Nico, that, that you feel the, the listeners um, and the hall should be, be reading of yours and trying to catch up on? There's three pieces now for the ringer about World Cup topics that are just like, you know, maybe they don't have the greatest relevance anymore, the last two, but they're still kind of general topics. So if you want to check them out, uh, as well as the piece I did about center backs, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, there's stuff for the athletic coming out about the promise or the prominence of big men in this World Cup, which has been really significant and what each of them brings. Um, there's three specific examples that I use: Fellaini, uh, Vardy, and uh, uh, Olivier Giroud is the other one. Um, so if you want to check that out, that'll be coming out in the athletic. But other than that, Chris, is there anything you have in the pipeline? Not a jot, but I'm. Delighted and surprised to see Jamie Vardy build as a big man um, because I think we're the same height. Um, but that all sounds wonderful. So there's something for you to go and enjoy before we come back and give you more. But in the meantime, as always, enjoy your football, enjoy the World Cup and just be nice to each other. Community was born three, they still believe, and that's the magic number.